Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here at Tanner, and today we want to talk about neuroanesthesia and basically how our anesthetic medications are going to affect the neurosystem for some of the main neurological procedures in the brain, not so much the spinal cord, but more just focusing on procedures we're going to do in the brain. How does what we do affect the blood flow into the brain, the oxygen consumption in the brain, risk of ischemia to the brain, etc.? So we're kind of going to go through the different anatomy of these different processes in terms of cerebral blood flow, perfusion pressure, ICP, etc., and then talk about how our anesthetic medications differ with that. So Tanner, just start us off here with the normal anatomy and physiology of how this process works. All right. So the first thing we want to talk about is just the anatomy of the blood-brain barrier. So this is going to be made up of endothelial cells with tight junctions that will prevent substances to go back and forth through the blood-brain barrier. This is important because many of our medications will not cross over this barrier. Our volatile anesthetics will. That's the point. We're going to try to have the onset of action there in the brain. And so we want our volatile anesthetics to cross this barrier. Uh, it's going to allow things such as your CO2, your oxygen to cross over, but it's going to prevent other substances from crossing over. If you remember back from our discussion on PONV, we talked about some different ideas of where your triggers for PONV would be. And we talked about how that there's some thought that there's maybe a little bit weaker of an area here in the blood-brain barrier, which is causing some of these noxious chemicals that we give with anesthesia to cause some problems with nausea and vomiting. So that's just one example of why this blood-brain barrier is so important to protect our brain from other substances and things that are not supposed to be there in our brain from crossing over. It's another consideration for when we give different types of fluids and we have different fluid shifts across the blood-brain barrier because it's allowing some things to cross but not others. This is where you can have issues with seizures or things like that. And so this is just a really important thing to keep in mind as we go throughout the discussion today about this barrier being in place. And it really is such a significant barrier here between the brain and the rest of the body. This is altered by things such as infection or tumors. If you have any kind of trauma, uh, seizures, hypoxemia, or even severe hypercapnia, these are all things that can affect the blood-brain barrier. And then you can have subsequent issues from that because of the damaged blood-brain barrier. So moving on, let's talk about the vasculature, the circle of Willis. We talked about this briefly when we talked about doing the carotid and things like that, but it's important to know the makeup here. So this is your vertebral arteries. The basilar artery forms the posterior cerebral arteries, and then the internal carotid arteries form the interior and middle cerebral arteries. Your cerebral blood flow, this is going to be something that's going to be very important to keep in mind as we go through the different procedures and just understanding what is going to increase this or decrease it. Keep in mind that about 15% of our cardiac output is going to go directly to the brain. So your cerebral blood flow is normally between 50 mils per 100 grams of brain tissue per minute. We want it above 20 mils per 100 grams of tissue per minute. If it's below that, that's when your risk of ischemia is greater. So your brain is obviously going to need oxygen just to carry out the different metabolic purposes there in the brain. You're going to need that both to maintain cellular function, but as well as electrical activity. And so the amount of oxygen 
antigen that is needed is called the CMRO2, which stands for the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen. So typically this is between three and four mils of oxygen per 100 grams of tissue per minute. So the higher that the CMRO2 is, the more oxygen is needed by the brain. So then the more cerebral blood flow you'll have to address this increased need for oxygen. So the areas of the brain that are more neuroactive, that's where you're going to have more blood flow because this is going to basically uh, be bringing all the oxygen there because of that higher CMRO2. So this is what's called the neurovascular coupling when you have the more cerebral blood flow to these areas that are more neuroactive. Right. So the neurovascular coupling is a big idea that we'll get into when we talk about our bottle anesthetics. But again, that's just the idea that as your CMRO2 increases, your cerebral blood flow will also increase to couple along with that to provide enough oxygen to that area of the brain. So just keep that in mind as you progress forward here in this talk. So how do we affect this CMRO2? Well, body temperature plays a big role into this. Your CMRO2 will decrease by 7% for every one degree of Celsius drop that there is. So if we purposefully cause the patient to be hypothermic, you can gather the picture here that that's going to decrease the brain activity, which will decrease the amount of CMRO2 and oxygen that is needed. So we won't need as much cerebral blood flow to provide as much oxygen to the brain. If we sedate the brain with our anesthetic agents, such as our volatile anesthetics, propofol, barbiturates, etc., the CMRO2 will decrease. And this pretty much makes sense. If we're going to be sedating the brain, we're not going to be using as much electrical activity. And so the brain won't need as much oxygen. And that's a very important thing to note here is the brain, I kind of like to envision as a muscle that's being exercised. And you can just be sitting down studying for multiple hours and you're, at least if, for me, I get very, very hungry after just studying for a couple hours. And that's just because even though I'm not out necessarily exercising my different muscles, you're still using a lot of energy to provide all that neurological functioning while you're studying. And that's because the electrical activity is firing at such a higher rate when you're mentally using the brain tissue. And so if we decrease that electrical activity in the brain, we're going to dramatically decrease the amount of oxygen that is being consumed and energy that is being consumed. So we won't need as much blood flow. On the flip side here, so I talked about hypothermia. Hyperthermia is going to increase your CMRO2. Other things that will increase it are going to be ketamine, nitrous oxide. So your volatile anesthetic gases, like I talked about, typically will lower your CMRO2. Nitrous oxide, it's actually shown to keep it the same or slightly increase it. And then seizures will also increase your CMRO2. That makes complete sense. Seizures are just going to cause a rapid influx of these electrical stimulus going through the brain, and that's going to increase the amount of oxygen that is needing to be consumed. Cerebral blood flow is also dependent on the venous pressure. So the blood that comes through that circle of willis through the arterial system then gets into the capillaries of the brain, provides oxygen, and then just like anywhere else in the body, switches over to the venous system and then drains back out of the head, back to the superior vena cava, and then to the right atrium. There are different things that can limit the blood flow draining out of the head, such as jugular compression, a backup of blood flow from the right side of the heart. If we have high PEEP, that'll also decrease the amount of blood that can get back into the heart, which will decrease the amount of draining from the head. And just really other things that, such as positioning, if we have the patient in a Trendelenburg position, gravity won't be assisting the drainage of that blood out of the head. So all these things can cause a backflow of blood into the brain 
and then will affect the amount of blood flow coming in from the arterial side. So just keep that in mind. One other thing that is very important that we can alter is your PaCO2. So PaCO2 causes vasodilation of these cerebral vessels. This maxes out about 80 or 90 millimeters of mercury of PaCO2. So if you continue to become more obtunded and more obtunded and increase that CO2 even more, it maxes out around that 80 or 90 mark. On the flip side, vasoconstriction occurs with low PaCO2, and this maxes out around 20 to 25 millimeters of mercury. So if we're hyperventilating the patient, getting that CO2 down lower, it's going to cause vasoconstriction of those cerebral arteries until the point that we get down to about 20 millimeters of mercury, and then after that, it doesn't constrict anymore. So as a result, respiratory acidosis is going to cause cerebral blood flow to increase. So if we think about that, Respiratory acidosis is the idea that you are hypoventilating the patient, getting that CO2 higher and causing an acidotic picture, and that'll dilate those cerebral blood vessels and increase cerebral blood flow. On the opposite side, respiratory alkalosis, so we're hyperventilating the patient, will cause a decrease in cerebral blood flow due to the constriction of the cerebral vessels. It's important to note that metabolic acidosis does not affect the blood flow. And this is because CO2 affects it because it can cross the blood-brain barrier, but bicarb and potassium ions aren't able to pass that blood-brain barrier. And so if you have a metabolic type picture, it's not going to see the effects in terms of cerebral blood flow alteration as the respiratory pH due to that CO2 being able to cross the blood-brain barrier. In terms of the CO2, the cerebral blood flow changes by about 1 milliliter per 100 grams of brain tissue per minute for every 1 millimeter change of that CO2. So depending on if you're going up or down on that CO2 will depend on whether that cerebral blood flow increases by 1 milliliter or decreases by 1 milliliter. Lastly, hypoxia can cause some vasodilation of the cerebral vessels. This really only is seen when you get below 50 millimeters of mercury on your PaO2. Anywhere else really doesn't shift it that much. But once you get below 50 you really start to see that vasodilation occur because the brain is trying to get more blood flow to provide more oxygen to the tissues. All right, so the next thing we want to talk about is the cerebral perfusion pressure. So your cerebral perfusion pressure, also CPP, is your MAP minus the ICP or your CVP. So whatever's higher between the ICP or CVP, that's what you'll subtract from your MAP, and then that will be your CPP or your cerebral perfusion pressure. So typically, the cerebral blood flow remains around 50 when your MAP is between 50 and 150. So again, this is our body's ability to autoregulate within a specific range of our MAP. So if that's between 50 and 150, then our cerebral blood flow will typically be around 50. When your MAP is less than 50, that's pretty much the end of the spectrum there where your cerebral blood vessels are completely dilated out, trying to allow as much blood flow to come in. When you're above 150, they're maximally constricted to basically minimize the amount of blood flow that will come in. And so right there, that 50 to 150 is where you're able to autoregulate outside of that is kind of your max dilation or max constriction, depending on which side you're on. Your volatile anesthetics will kind of hinder your ability to autoregulate. So this is something to keep in mind when you're really trying to pay attention to your CPP. Remember that your volatile anesthetics might diminish that ability from 50 to 150. So you might need to pay a little closer attention to where your map is. Intracranial pressure, usually this is between 5 and 15 millimeters of mercury. It's considered elevated if you're above 20. 
You can measure this with uh, intraventricular catheter within the lateral ventricle. The transducer, remember, should be at the height of the ear. So that's where you're going to want to level your transducer. It's important that you recognize signs and symptoms of increased ICP. So that would be things like a headache, nausea, vomiting. If they have focal neurologic deficits, altered consciousness, seizures, altered breathing pattern. These are pretty difficult to identify under a general anesthetic. And so it's important that we also understand some of the other things that you might see. So remember Cushing's triad is something else that you can see with increased ICP. Cushing's triad is a triad of hypertension, bradycardia, and irregular respirations. Again, irregular respirations is maybe not something that you'd be able to see under a general anesthetic, but something to keep on your radar with that hypertension and bradycardia. So now, what makes up our ICP? So what are the things that make up basically the pressure in the cranium? So you have brain tissue, the mass there, you have your CSF, and then you have your cerebral blood. So remember that these three things are physically contained in the bony outline of the skull. So you're in a very confined space there. So if you want to keep the pressure inside the skull under that 20 millimeters of mercury, then you need to be able to manipulate one of these three things. Obviously, we're not trying to change the brain tissue unless there's a mass or something that is causing the increased ICP. So for us, usually we'll be manipulating either the CSF or the cerebral blood flow. CSF is made from the choroid plexus and is broken down by the arachnoid villi. So if too much is being produced, then that can cause an increase in your ICP or if you have a decrease in the reabsorption. So that'd be a problem there with the arachnoid villi, then that is where you could also see an increased ICP picture. So all in all, you have about 150 mils of CSF at any given time, and you'll make about 500 or 700 mils per day. So you can see that your absorption picture is very active if you are making, you know, say 500 a day, but you only have about 150 at a time. And so it's a very intricate balance between production and then also absorption of the CSF. If a tumor develops or if you have brain swelling, then the tissue will increase in volume and cause increased pressure. That's pretty obvious. It's just a basic cause and effect there. So if you have increased swelling or, again, a mass, then that's going to increase the brain tissue, the size there, and so you're going to have to decrease the other two. So as your ICP increases, there's going to be more pressure on the cerebral blood flow that it has to push against. Remember that your CPP is your MAP minus the ICP or the CVP, whatever is greater there. So if you have an increase in your ICP, then there's going to be a reduction in the amount of blood that's able to basically get into the brain. So your cerebral blood flow will decrease. So this is a problem because this can cause ischemia to the brain tissue, and then that ischemia will cause further edema, and then this causes further increases in your ICP. So this is just basically a downward spiral of increased pressure, potentiating more pressure, which then continues to just cause more ischemia, more edema. You get the picture. This is not good. So this is something that we're going to need to manage. And again, if you're having issues with the actual mass, then again, we're going to be managing either the blood flow or the CSF. So what are some ways during a case that we can manage the ICP? So as Tanner already talked about, in order to reduce the ICP, we can do one of a couple of things. We can reduce the CSF. We can reduce the amount of blood flow. We can reduce the brain swelling or edema that there is. Or if it is a result of a tumor or a tissue mass 
or even uh, a hemorrhage, which we'll get to in a second, we can try to evacuate that or remove the tumor. So during an actual procedure, we can hyperventilate the patient. And what this does, as we talked about earlier, hyperventilation will lower your CO2 level, which will cause vasoconstriction of the cerebral vessels and decrease the amount of cerebral blood flow. So decrease the amount of blood getting into the brain will then decrease the amount of pressure in the brain. However, you don't want to go too low on your PaCO2. So a lot of surgeons try to have you go on the lower side, about 30 to 35 millimeters of mercury on your PaCO2. If it's below 30, it can constrict too much and actually causes an ischemia to the tissue. So we don't want to do that. Because ischemia to the tissue then causes inflammation and swelling, which will then make the pressure even higher because we are now swelling in our tissue. That leads me to my next point. We can give Decadron or Solumedrol to reduce the cerebral edema. Again, we want to be careful, though, when we're giving these things because hyperglycemia results from the steroids that we give. And the hyperglycemia is actually converted into lactic acidosis and it'll cause more ischemia. So we got to keep that blood glucose level in control while we're giving these steroids. We can also reduce our CMRO2 with our medications such as propofol, barbiturates, our bottle anesthetics, etc. And this will decrease our cerebral blood flow because we're not going to need as much oxygen. So if you recall with the coupling, if there's a decrease in the CMRO2, there'll be a decrease in the cerebral blood flow, which will decrease ICP. Another thing we can do is give diuretics such as mannitol or Lasix. These work by pulling water back across the blood-brain barrier because if we are diuresing and removing lots of urine, then the plasma becomes hyperosmotic, meaning we've lost a lot of fluid, but we retain those solutes. So that blood-brain barrier acts as a semipermeable membrane, and all that fluid on the one side of the blood-brain barrier inside the brain will see the hyperosmotic state on the systemic side, and it'll cross that blood-brain barrier to equal out that osmotic pressure. Another reason we can give hypertonic saline, 3%, that's the same effect here as the diuretics, and it'll basically cause a hyperosmotic state in the plasma and pull more fluid across the blood-brain barrier out of the brain. Be careful when we're giving this, though. We've got to watch our sodium and chloride lab values, uh, especially when we're giving lots and lots of these fluids. Another thing that makes sense is to affect the CSF, we can place an external ventricular drain and actually drain that CSF fluid. Usually we drain about 10 mils an hour. Uh, again, we make about 25 milliliters an hour of CSF. So if we're draining about 10, we can kind of see how much we're draining compared to how much we're making because we don't want to overshoot and drain too much. But that is a way to reduce the amount of pressure. You want to avoid cerebral vasodilators such as nitroglycerin or nitroprusside due to the fact that if we're dilating the cerebral vasculature, it's just going to cause more blood to rush in. And that's obviously not what we want to do in this case. And then lastly, you want to limit the use of PEEP. Again, if you remember, PEEP, by increasing that, will obstruct the venous outflow from the brain, and this will cause more blood to build up in the brain and increase that ICP. We can make sure the head is in a neutral position so we're not kinking or causing jugular obstruction, and you can even sit the head up about 30 degrees if possible, depending on the procedure, and this will ensure venous drainage. All right, next let's talk about the anesthetic drugs that we give and then their effects here on the neurosystem. So the inhalational drugs, we already talked about this a little bit, but this will uncouple the CMRO2 and the CBF. So like Cole was talking about earlier, typically when the CMRO2 will decrease, then your CBF, your cerebral blood flow will also decrease. 
This is uncoupled with our inhalational drugs. So you'll have increased cerebral blood flow because of the vasodilation, but then you'll also have decreased CMRO2. So this is basically the uncoupling there of that CBF and CMRO2. They will decrease the MAP while increasing the ICP. So this reduces the cerebral perfusion pressure. We see this most with isoflurane. Nitrous oxide is pretty interesting because it produces an increase in your cerebral blood flow, CMRO2, and ICP. You also need to keep in mind that if there's intracranial air from a recent surgical procedure or something like that, nitrous oxide will cause that to grow. So if it's used with other volatile anesthetics, it can cause extreme vasodilation. This will increase your CBF again, increase your CMRO2. So this is something that people will talk about when you're doing the neuro cases. Some people will just say that nitrous should never be used. And this is the reasoning here is that it can have some pretty drastic effects if there is any amount of air that is there from a recent surgical procedure or something. And then again, just as it increases your CMRO2 and cerebral blood flow. Propofol, as you might imagine, decreases your cerebral blood flow and CMRO2, and your CPP will also decrease as well. Your other drugs that you might give on induction, so think about Atomidate, that will also reduce CMRO2 and cerebral blood flow, but it does not affect your cerebral perfusion pressure. You want to avoid this in patients with epileptic seizures unless you are trying to induce a seizure for the purposes of the procedure. But typically, if they have a history of seizures, you're not going to want to use Atomidate. Presidex will decrease your cerebral blood flow, but it will not change your CMRO2. This is one of the differences between Presidex and Propofol, the decrease in the CMRO2 with Propofol. But again, Presidex will not change your cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen. Opioids decrease cerebral blood flow and CMRO2, as well as your ICP. Don't use meparidine in neuro patients, though, because it's metabolite. Normaparidine is a convulsant, and so you don't want to give this to patients that are already susceptible here in the neurosurgical patient. Don't over-narcotize the patient. On wake-ups, the patient will have a lower minute ventilation, which will increase your CO2. Remember, an increased CO2 will cause cerebral vasodilation and ICP. So morphine and other drugs that release histamine should also be a consideration here. Remember that histamine is going to be another vasodilator, so this will increase your cerebral blood flow as well. So these are just things to keep in mind as you go through your medication list, things that you would consider giving these patients. Remember what is going to cause an increase in your CO2. Benzos will decrease your CMRO2 and cerebral blood flow. This is usually something that we try to limit around neurosurgeries because we want to be able to get a full baseline neurostatus on these patients, and sometimes those benzos can hang around and alter our assessment. So just be very judicious as you're thinking about using your benzos. Ketamine will increase your cerebral blood flow and ICP. Succinylcholine is another one that will increase your ICP based on your increase in cerebral blood flow. You can limit this effect by giving a pre-treatment dose of a non-depolarizer. Non-depolarizers really shouldn't have much effect on your ICP. The exception to that would be the ones that release histamine, just like morphine, that's going to cause vasodilation with the histamine release. Nitroprusside, nitroglycerin, those will increase your cerebral blood flow and ICP due to the vasodilation. So again, these are things that you want to use very cautiously if you're going to use those in neural cases. 
I think the long short of all of this is that things that are going to cause vasodilation, obviously your nitroprusside, nitroglycerin, some with your opioids, your anesthetic gases, obviously these vasodilation effects are going to cause an increase in your cerebral blood flow. You're going to want to be cautious of things that are very excitatory, such as ketamine. That's going to increase your cerebral blood flow. And then just keep in mind that the things that are going to depress your CMRO2, so things like propofol, again, our anesthetic gases, benzos, those are going to be things that you want to consider. And then just remember the effects that are going to happen long-term. So when you're trying to wake this patient up, are you going to have a heavy anesthetic load or they're having lower minute ventilation, so you're going to have issues with your CO2. Or if you say you gave benzos, then you have issues with getting a good baseline. So these are all things that I feel like you understand as an anesthesia provider, but it's important just to connect the dots as far as why these may not be appropriate to use here in a narrow case. In terms of fluid management during these cases, we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but hypotonic or glucose-containing solutions create this gradient where more fluid is going to shift across the blood-brain barrier into the brain and will cause more cerebral edema. This is more from the fact that by giving these hypotonic solutions, you are now creating a hyperosmotic state inside the brain on that side of the blood-brain barrier. So more fluid from the systemic circulation is going to cross the blood-brain barrier and swell into the brain, trying to neutralize that osmotic gradient. Isotonic solutions don't really have a gradient, so these are nice to give if you're wanting to maintain where you're at. Just know that if you give a lot of normal saline, you can kind of cause that hypochlormic metabolic acidosis. And if we're trying to determine with our ABGs how our acidotic state is, from a respiratory standpoint, if we're causing acidosis from a hypochloremic metabolic acidosis state, this can kind of confuse our ABG interpretation. Some people encourage balancing back and forth between lactated ringers and normal saline and just try not to give too much normal saline. As I talked about before, hypertonic solutions and our diuretics such as mannitol are going to cause fluid to move out of the brain by causing a hyperosmotic state in the plasma, and this will lower the amount of fluid in the brain and decrease that ICP. So that wraps up part one of our neuro discussion in terms of how we're going to manage these patients by our interventions that will affect the intracranial pressure, the CMRO2, the cerebral blood flow, etc. So I hope you enjoyed this talk, and hopefully you're able to better take care of these patients now during neurological procedures. Thank you.